This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. It's a blessing to be here with you this morning. I'm thankful for the, for the chance that we have to, to gather together to worship the Lord and uh, thankful for the visitors that are here and for the songs. Uh, thank you for selecting songs that focus on heaven. That's what we're going to study about this morning. Uh, I came to this, uh, the decision to study these topics because I was thinking about heaven and hell and how little that I actually bring those things up and speak on those things. And I think it's important for us to review these details so that we understand the eternal destinations that are before us. Because there are only two options when you, when you look at what the Bible teaches. There, we will either uh, be ad- admitted into heaven and ha- inherit the kingdom, as the Bible says, or we will be cast out into outer darkness, into what the Bible calls the lake of fire. So we're going to examine both of those things in, in two parts. We won't examine both of those in, uh, in, this, uh, in this one study. But we're going to fir- first focus on heaven. And as I studied these details, there was a lot of things that, are, that I found very interesting about heaven. And really, what I found most interesting is how much it focuses on Christ. And it's not something that I ever uh, thought about as deeply or how, how connected uh, Christ is to heaven, uh, which might sound odd because uh, that's the, the ultimate destination, of course. But hopefully as we go through this, you'll see... Uh, the pattern here, and, and uh, you'll be able to appreciate some, some details as we think about heaven to a greater degree. Uh, first of all, what is heaven? I think that's the first thing that comes into mind when we talk about heaven. Uh, what is that place? And there's a lot that the Bible has to say about it. There's a lot of descriptions that the Bible might give, or at least pictures. And uh, I think a lot of the times when the Bible describes heaven, it's really hard for us to really grasp that from a human perspective. And so, the Bible uses a lot of poetic language, a lot of uh, metaphor, uh, metaphoric language, a lot of uh, imagery to help us to get some type of picture of what heaven will be because, you know, sometimes the Bible describes it as a place where there's a crystal sea and the streets of gold and, and there's all these gems and all these things and it glimmers as, as bright as these, uh, these precious, beautiful stones. But I think that's just a description to help us grasp how wonderful it is and uh, God's using things that are relatable to us to help us to get a picture of that. But I don't know that they're truly made of gold or it's a, a, a crystal sea. I'm not sure about that. Uh, but it at least helps us to have some type of, uh, whether it's a low resolution or high resolution concept, it's a concept that we can have in our minds about what it's going to be like at that place. Because it is a place. Um, and a few things that I, that I wanted to point out about heaven and what it is, the main thing we do need to know and understand are these things. Uh, number one, that's where God dwells. In Acts chapter 7, verse 48 and 49, uh, Stephen is, is, is preaching and teaching the Jews and telling them, and he says, Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. He quotes the Old Testament scriptures that talk about where God dwells, and this is where he dwells. He, it's not in a temple, in an earthly temple made with hands, because the Jews were so fixated on earthly uh, institutions and earthly locations as a place where God is, but he's making the case that uh, he does not dwell in a physical plane. Uh, he fills the physical plane. He is in the physical plane, 
but he does not dwell there. He dwells in a spiritual plane, and God, uh, or Jesus makes reference to that in other places. God is a spirit, or God that dwells in the temple, um, and, and he says here, heaven is my throne, and this is the location of God's presence and his throne, and, and he fills that space, and his glory is there. And the earth is viewed as his footstool, just like a foot, a foot rest. Um, and, and that kind of gives you some idea of this relationship between heaven and earth, how much greater heaven is. Uh, not only is the throne of God there, and that's where his throne is, that's where the temple is. There is a temple that is there that uh, you think about the Old Testament temple that Moses constructed. He was told to shape it and build it after the pattern that he was shown. God gave him a vision about that temple in heaven, and he says, construct this temple, and it's supposed to be a... a uh, it's supposed to be a low-level replica of, really, of what is in heaven, and that's what is described in Hebrews chapter 9. But notice how it, it talks about Christ going there. He says, Christ has not entered into holy places made with hands. And this was important for the Jews to understand. He didn't enter into the physical temple there in Jerusalem. He entered into, and, and that temple in Jerusalem is just a figure of the true thing. It's just a picture of what is real in heaven. And he says, but Jesus went into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. And so... Uh, the temple is described as being there in heaven, and the temple really was just a way to uh, show God's presence, and Jesus going there, he stands before the presence of God, and he offers for us and makes intercession for us. So when you think of heaven, understand this is where God dwells. It is often described that his throne is there, and it is often described as the holy, the most holy place, the place where God's presence is, and that is the temple as, as it's also described. Uh, uh, it's a way to describe that. Um, there's also spiritual beings that fill that place, and there's verse after verse that we could point to. One that comes to mind very quickly, when Gabriel comes to Mary, he says in Luke chapter 119, the angel answered and said, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. There is a hierarchy of angels that the Bible describes. We're not going to go through any of those verses. There's so many details that, that we could just focus an entire study and men have done, uh, the brothers have done an entire series on that. I recommend the series from uh, Mike Minson on, on angels if you really want to dig in deeper into that, that subject because it's fascinating and it's amazing. Uh, but understand, Gabriel comes and he says, I'm an angel, I stand in the presence of God. And there are angels that fill God's presence, they surround his throne, they sing holy, holy, holy as we get descriptions of and whether Daniel or Ezekiel or, or in the book of Revelations, it's the, described for us as there are millions and millions of angels that fill this place that God has created. And the, the coolest thing is that the Bible describes who created those things, and it's Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 through 17, it says, For by Him, by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth whether they're visible or invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Those, that phrasing there, the thrones and dominions and principalities and powers, it's describing a, a system of things, an order of things of, uh, that God has put in place of, of, of authorities, not just earthly governments and boundaries and those types of things. He's talking about heavenly, a heavenly system as well. There's a, in the spiritual world, there is some type of hierarchy that, that exists. We get glimmers of it. We don't get the full picture of that but understand that Jesus is the one who designed that. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. Now, this was striking to the, the false Gnostic doctrines that, that were prevalent at the time, that Jesus was simply a created being that then created everything. And no, it says that, yes, he created everything, but he's the source of all things. 
he's not a created being himself, but uh, he came even uh, he he came in the presence of a man, yes, or in the in the in the form of a man, yes. But he is the source of all life, and that includes the things that are in heaven, which is which is fascinating to me. He's he's the one who created all these beings, these these angels that serve him and that serve his will, and the things that are there. He's the one who made those things, and that's incredibly important for us to understand when we're talking about heaven, that it's where God dwells, it's a spiritual place, uh, it's, a, it's an entirely different plane than we can even wrap our minds around. Our eyes cannot see it, but it is a place that Jesus created. Uh, and it's important for us to know because that's where Jesus comes from. He comes from heaven. Uh, that's where he dwells. That's where he originates from. He talks about this in the book of John when he, he asked the Father to glorify him with the glory that he had before he came to this earth because he had glory in heaven that was indescribable. And we know in Philippians he said that he, count, he counted it not robbery to be equal. He didn't think it's something to be grasped, but he let go of that and was willing to give that up to come to earth. But understand that he came to tell us about heaven because he's from there. He has seen it and, he, and experienced it, and, and he is the most qualified to talk about it, not only because he's seen it, because he's the one who designed the whole thing. Imagine that. He's the, he's the expert and beyond the expert because he created all of it. Um, you know, we trust insiders with, with information. If you, sometimes if you're looking to apply at some place, you look for people who are on the inside because you want to understand what is it like to work there. And you trust that information. You don't go to some random person on the street and say, hey, what is it like to work over at Walmart? Let's say, I don't know, we're in Walmart land, so <laughs> this always comes to mind. Uh, you wouldn't ask me, because I don't know. I've never worked there. You might got, find somebody who is on the inside. Uh, now imagine you going to Sam Walton and asking him about the details about working at Walmart. He's the one who created all of it. He knows intimately what it, what it means, what it stands for, the design of it, the purpose, all of those things. So he would be a tr the most trusted source on the topic. And then, you know, ask somebody who works there, especially somebody who designed the whole thing. So think about it in that way. Jesus is not just familiar with heaven because he comes from there. He knows it inside and out because he designed the entire thing. He's the source of it all. Uh, and so he isn't... Now, think about him as a man. He comes into this world and is in, in incarnate. He is God in the flesh, as it is described in John chapter 1. And he is an eyewitness of the things of heaven and brings and reveals information to us. And in fact, that's what, that's what John the Baptist told his disciples when they came and said, hey, we know about this Christ and think about all these things. He's over here in, uh, baptizing him and his disciples, and they come to him. And so John starts to explain, and he says, verily, verily, I say unto thee, uh, or no, Jesus, rather, he's being questioned by, by uh, Nicodemus in this part. Um, I'm I'm jump, jumping ahead of my notes. But notice what Jesus himself says about his testimony of heaven to Nicodemus. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that what we do know and testify what we have seen, and, and you receive not our witness. I have t if I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? So he's, he's speaking to the heart of the issue with Nicodemus and with the Jews, and he says, If you won't even believe earthly things that I come and tell you that are true, you're not going to believe me when I tell you of the heavenly things. Why? Because no man has ascended to heaven. There's nobody who's gone to heaven, and, and uh, no man has gone there but the one that came down from heaven. That is Christ. He is from there. There's no eyewitness of heaven other than Jesus. 
and he says that it's the Son of Man. That's because he's from there, and he is the most qualified to teach us about that. Uh, so think about that. No man has ascended to heaven but Jesus. He's the one who's from there, and no man has seen heaven but Jesus. And so he's the one who's telling us about it because he's from the inside. Uh, he knows what it's like to be there um, because he created it all. And he came to teach us about living holy lives, um, and it made me think about the prayer he taught his disciples. He says, Thy kingdom come, thy, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus came for the very purpose to teach us how to do God's will on earth so that it would be as done as if it were in heaven uh, because he wants us to live holy lives. And that's what John the Baptist was t t telling his disciples in John chapter 3.31. He said, He who comes from above is above all. Jesus is the one that comes from heaven, and so he's over everything. That's what Paul said in Colossians. He who is of the earth, and he's talking about himself. He's like, I'm just a man. I'm from the earth, and I'm earthly, and I speak of the earth. John was just talking about the things he knew about and was familiar with and he, his experience. Jesus was talking about the things he knew of and his experience, and that is heaven. He who comes from heaven is above all, and what he has seen and heard, that is what he's testifying of. And, and John laments here that no one has received his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the word, words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. So he's saying, yeah, Jesus comes from there, and he came to teach us about heaven. He came to teach us how to live as people from heaven because he wants us to know uh, what he has seen and what he knows about. He knows about heaven, and he knows about heavenly things, and he comes and shines that light, exposes the truth, opens our eyes, gives us the knowledge, gives us the power so that we can go there because that's ultimately what Jesus wants. And remember, he's testifying of things that he saw and he heard because he comes from there. Jesus said that himself in John 5, 37. He says, the Father himself which sent me has borne witness of me. And he laments as well. Neither have you heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape. Um, he laments the fact that they're not going to listen to him. But notice what he says. We haven't seen, heard God's voice and seen his shape, but Jesus has. Jesus has heard his voice. Jesus has seen him face to face. Jesus knows who the Father is, and he's trying to tell us about him and people won't receive it. He says, you don't have his word abiding in you. For whom he has sent, him you believe not. He's saying, he's lamenting the fact that people don't believe. He's saying, you should believe me because I am an eyewitness of heaven. And so then he commands them, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. And he's sad because people won't come to him that they might have eternal life. But take note, Jesus has seen God. He knows his shape. He knows him very intimately. And he came to tell us about that because he wants us to go there. John 14, verse 2 to 3 says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus is he's telling his disciples, I'm not lying to you about the things that are there in heaven. He designed it all. He created it all. But he says, this is what's there. There are many mansions, and if it were not true, I wouldn't have told you this. And so then he says, I'm going. I'm leaving to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare it, I will come again and receive you that where I am, you may be also. He wants his people. He wants his children. He wants those who believe. He wants those who want to be with him to be with him. And he's not lying about the things that he saw. And so he came to let us know that he wants to take us there. And it's interesting because that is, the, that is a theme that is present in the scriptures. We are not of this world. Yes, we are. We're earthly. But 
the Bible describes it. That's why Peter described in 1 Peter 2, 11, we're not going to read it, but he says, we're strangers and foreigners in this world. We don't belong here anymore. We did at one time, but because of the consequences of sin and the plan that God put in place, we don't belong here anymore. Paul said in Philippians that our citizenship is in heaven. The faithful in Hebrews chapter 11 are mentioned as those that are looking for a city that has foundations, true foundations, a city that will never be overtaken, that will never fall, that will never decay, whose builder and maker is God. That's why they're described that way as sojourners in this, in this land. They're just traveling, uh, journeying on their way to heaven. That's why he calls us, Christ calls us to live a certain way, and Peter mentions this as well, live a certain way so that we will inherit the blessings that Christ has promised us. And that certain way is don't get so attached to this earth. Remember that we're just pilgrims here. And Jesus came to let us know about that and teach us about that. And he came to let us know how to get there. And the way we get there is by yielding ourselves to his commandments and giving up our own will and pursuing his. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 38, when he had called the people with his disciples, he said to them, whoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the way you get to heaven. That's the way you embrace Christ. Deny yourself, detach yourself from, from the desires and all the things of this world, and take up your cross and embrace the suffering that it is to follow Christ, because it is suffering. You do have to give up yourself, and it hurts and it's painful. But notice the result. He says, whoever will save his life will lose it. If you try to preserve what you have, you are going to lose your soul. But whosoever will lose his life, if, if you, like Christ, think it not something to be grasped and you're willing to let go, you will find your life. If you, if you give your life for his sake and the gospels, the same will save it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what will you give in exchange? So how do we do this? How do we embrace this? It takes embracing his word and not being ashamed of this like the rich man, when he's told to give it up so that he can inherit eternal life, he's telling us we need to give up the things that we value and count as riches of this earthly life. Give that up. If not, that means we're going to be ashamed of his word because we're not going to do it. He says, whosoever will be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his angels. We can't be ashamed of the words of Christ and say, well, I've got to give this stuff up, and oh man, I, gotta, I can't do these things that I want. No, we have to embrace it and say, you know, this is what Christ has asked us. This is what it means to live as a citizen of heaven. This is what it means to live in pursuit of that country, that land that has, no, that has solid foundations, and I'm going to embrace that. But remember, Jesus comes from heaven, and he tells us what's there. He tells us what it's like. He tells us how to get there, and he is a trusted source uh, on this subject. Now, not only is Jesus from heaven, Jesus, he came to this earth from heaven, was, in, was made into the likeness of a man. He died, and when he was raised, he was raised back to heaven. That's where Jesus went after he was raised. Um, now, in the meantime, he, he did go back there, but I think there's something important that we have to uh, think about as well. Yes, he died and he was buried, but for three days, he was not in heaven. He was in Hades. Then he was raised to eternal life into heaven. That's the order that the scriptures lay out in Acts 2.31. Peter quoting the psalmist, uh, he, he quotes David and talks about the resurrection and talks about how Christ's soul was uh, in Hades. But he said, 
explaining the passage from the Psalms, he says, David, foreseeing this, he was speaking concerning the resurrection of Christ, that Christ's soul was not left in Hades, nor did Christ's flesh see corruption. Christ went to Hades. He was there. He went to this realm. When we die, this is what it's showing us, when we die, uh, he explains it in Luke chapter 16 with the rich man Lazarus, our body goes to the grave and our soul goes to this place called Hades. And we go and we wait there. Now Jesus himself went and waited there. Now, of course, he went to the place that's described as comfort or Abraham's bosom, and it's, it's, uh, which is interesting to me. Why would it be so great? Uh, it's a, it, why would we need comfort if it's something that's good? And the, the, the reality is that it's not good, and that's why Jesus went there to reverse this uh, curse of being separated from our bodies and our, and our souls and, of course, separated from God. That's death. But Jesus uh, was in Hades, and he was raised from that place. In Revelations 1.18, he says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And the point is that Jesus experienced exactly what we're going to experience. Our body and our soul will be separated. We'll go to this place. But Jesus was raised from that place to eternal life, never to die again. And in that state of eternal life, that he ascends to heaven in the form of a man. In Mark chapter 16, verse 19, so then after the Lord had spoken to his disciples, this is after his resurrection, and he's teaching them many things, and as he's speaking, it says in Luke 24, as he's speaking, he starts to ascend into heaven. Acts chapter 1 describes it as well, but he was received up into heaven, and he went there, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what Jesus did. He was raised to eternal life from physic physically, to never die again, and then ascended into heaven to sit on the throne of God. And not only is he the king that sits on the throne, he's also the priest. He's our high priest who goes into the temple and offers his blood. We read about that, but remember, he says he's entered into the holy place uh, to, to appear in the presence of God for us. And there in Hebrews 9, it talks about the eternal redemption that he claimed for us by going and offering his precious blood. So he is the, the king, and he is the priest, and he ascended to heaven, and that's where he is now. That's where Jesus waits now. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Paul said, Who is he that condemns? It's Christ. He describes Christ as the one who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So Jesus waits there in heaven and is an advocate for us, praying for us, making intercession for us. Think about that. Think about how special and how amazing that is. Sometimes we feel like, sometimes we might forget to pray for each other. And we might feel like there's nobody in our corner. And you might feel alone. But remember that Jesus knows your weaknesses, and He is praying for you. He's interceding on your behalf to the Father, constantly. He ever lives, the Bible says, to make intercession for us. And He, is a, he, he lives eternally to do that and to help us and to pray for us. In John, 1 John chapter 2, He says that He is an advocate with the Father. He is our advocate and is constantly praying for us if we're committing sin. He wants us to succeed, and He's there in heaven now, at the throne of God, and He's waiting. What is He waiting for? What is Jesus doing in heaven? 
Well, of course, he's waiting, and he's, as he waits, he makes intercession for us, and he watches, and he, he prays, and he hopes that we will embrace his word and not be ashamed of it, and he hopes that we'll live and embrace the suffering uh, as he embraced it so that we will arrive at that place and, and be counted worthy of that place. But Jesus is waiting because he is going to come back from heaven. That's where Jesus is going to come from. When he returns to this earth, he is coming from heaven. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, it says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. In this moment, this instant, we're all sitting here waiting with bated breath, anticipating the time of Christ's return. The Bible describes it as a day that will come as a, uh, or the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, unexpected, without warning. It'll be a surprise. Now, it shouldn't be a surprise to Christians because he's warned us about it. So we shouldn't, it's like telling, it's like saying, hey, Christmas is coming in December. And then December comes in, oh, what? Christmas? We're surprised? That's, that happens to me every year. It's like, oh, no, I didn't get any gifts. But it shouldn't be a surprise. We know. And that's the same thing with heaven. He says, uh, and Christ's return. He says, Christ is coming. It shouldn't be a shock. It shouldn't be a surprise. We should be aware of it and be prepared for that. Because Christ is coming from there. And what is he coming to do from heaven? He's coming to execute judgment. And when he comes back from heaven, everyone who has died will be raised up again. Everyone. Everyone that's in the graves. John, he says this himself, John 5, 28. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the graves will hear his voice. Everybody that has gone to Hades, everyone whose body is buried, will be raised up. And they will come forth out of the graves. Their, their soul will be put back together with their body. Those that have done good to the resurrection of life and those that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. That's where he'll execute judgment. He will come from heaven and the power and the authority of, of heaven and he will separate the goats and the sheep. And he'll say to those on the right hand, the sheep, enter into the joys of the kingdom. Inherit the, the kingdom that has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. On those to the left hand, the goats on the left, he will, he will say, depart from me, you that work iniquity, depart from me, curse it into everlasting darkness and into the fire and all those things. That's what's going to happen when Christ returns from heaven. Now, we'll talk about the sheep and the left hand next time, but I want to focus on the right hand, those that are his who will be raised up to inherit eternal life. When Jesus comes back, we will experience the resurrection of life. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, he says, If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and how do you have him dwell in you? You don't be ashamed of his word. You embrace the sacrifice. You pursue him diligently as a foreigner and stranger in this world. You live out the gospel in your own life. That's how you can make sure that the spirit will remain in you and dwell in you. And so that means making your life inhabitable by the spirit and for the Spirit. But if that Spirit dwells in you, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, that same Spirit that raised up Christ from the dead will quicken and make your physical body, your mortal body, it'll make it alive because of that Spirit that dwells in you. So take note that the Bible describes that time of the resurrection. Your physical body is going to be raised up from the grave if the Spirit dwells in you and you'll receive the resurrection of life. Okay? Now, this makes me think of quite a 
quite a few things, but the main thing it makes me think about is all the well-meaning things that people say at funerals to comfort themselves. And I'm not saying this to diminish anyone. I understand it's a response. We're trying to comfort ourselves. We're sad. We're trying to grasp with reality and trying to make sense of it all. But, you know, sometimes you hear things, and I've heard, I've heard quite a few things, but usually you hear things like, well, you know, you've got the body prepared and it's there. And people look at it and go, well, that's not really them. Yes, it is. <laughs> that's really them. That's a part of them. And that mortal body is going to be raised up. And it has to be. And so you, just because the body and soul are separate doesn't mean that body is no longer that person. It is that person. It is part of them. Now, yes, they're not alive and they're not, they're not you know, uh, they're, they're inanimate now. and It's just a, a body that's going to decay, sure. But that's still them. And it's not a good idea to... Uh, to comfort ourselves with some falsehood like that and say, well, it's, n it's not really them. That is really that person. Another thing that people might say is that, well, they're in a better place now. And I question that. Is it really better for our body and our soul to be separate? And it's not. It's not better for us to be in that condition, in that state. That's exactly why Jesus came and died and was there in Hades and was raised up to his physical body to eternal life, to reverse that because that's part of the curse and it's not better, it's not good for our body and our soul to be separate. So no, it's not. They're not in a better place. They're not in a better state. Now, I get what people are saying. They want to, we want to comfort ourselves and say, well, the, you know, they're in a good place now. They're not suffering, and they're not this, or they're not that. And, you know, truthfully, we don't know whether somebody is going to go to the place of comfort while they wait, or they're going to go to the place of torment. We don't really know. And so, you know, I think it's... We can be hopeful for that. We can be prayerful for that, for sure. But ultimately, we're not the judge. So I, I, I personally, I try to be careful with that because I don't, I don't know. I can't declare somebody righteous and, and uh, you know, ad admit them into that place of comfort. Um, I don't have that power. I hope so. I hope people are. And we can count on people who we've seen to be faithful and can have confidence. And we should have confidence. I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying be careful with the language that we use and the ideas that we plant in our minds because they might sprout and the fruit might be rotten. Um, the third thing sometimes people say is like, well, they're up there now and they're golfing. They're up there. They, they went to heaven and they're fishing. And, you know, I'm not going to get too deep into that, but I'm, I will just say that I think those kinds of conceptions that we have are... Yeah, I, I get it. We're trying to wrap our minds around it. We're trying to say we hope that they're in this comfort. We hope they're happy and we hope they're, they're doing well. All those types of things because we can't stand the thought of them potentially not being in a, in a place that's so great. And so, but I think if we try to compare it to earthly things in such a way, I think it kind of cheapens the, the value of heaven. Um, but that's all I'll say about that. But we do those kinds of things and we think, okay, this person died and now they went to heaven. And I, I'm hard-pressed to believe that when we die, we go to heaven. I don't think that we do. Because of the picture that we see of Jesus, when he died, he went to Hades. We don't get to circumvent the, the process and the order of things. And I'll, I'll show you that here with a couple of scriptures. But I don't, I don't think people are in heaven, and they can't be in heaven without their mortal body having been changed. You can't just be a soul and go to heaven. You have to have your body and your soul put back together for you to be able to go into that place. Now it has to change. We'll see here in a moment why. 
But you can't be in there with just one part of you. It requires us to have a body and not just a soul. And so it's impossible, I think, uh, just logically thinking about it. And maybe I'm wrong, so if, if you have more uh, information on that, please feel free to share that with me and help, help me understand that. But where I'm at right now, I, in thinking about this and studying it, I, I just don't know that that's possible uh, given the process. So the last thing is that sometimes people say, oh, the Lord, he just needed another angel. And there's this idea that when we die, we transform somehow into an angel and we become an angel when we go to heaven. And I don't think that's true either. We don't become angels when we die. That, that doesn't make any sense. We don't change into a different being. We, we remain ourselves. We remain what God created us to be. But we don't transform into an angel, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll show you why. Maybe we are like the angels in that we become a more like a spiritual being in that sense, which I think is true, but we don't become an angel. Um, I, I don't think that's accurate at all. But what is accurate? Well, let's look at what the Bible teaches. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talked about this in verse 50. He says, Now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Your mortal body, the way it is now, your body and soul, yes, you're going to be reunited, but that form cannot go into the kingdom. You can't inherit the kingdom of God in that state. And so, uh, because it's, it's a corrupt form, and that cannot inherit incorruption. So what's going to happen? Okay, when Christ returns with that angel with the mighty shout and everyone's raised from the grave and we receive the resurrection of life, in verse 51, he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep, meaning we're not going to be in this state of being dead and our body and soul are separate, but we all will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, when Christ comes and that happens, it, I get the picture that this is all going to happen pretty quickly. I don't know the, the time period and all that. I certainly don't believe the, the premillennial ideas that drag all of this out into seven-year tribulation and all this, you know, millennial reign, all, these, all that kind of stuff is not described in the Bible. But he says here that the trumpet will sound and the dead will rise incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible form that we have, it must put on an incorruptible form. Our bodies must be transformed and our mortal body must put on immortality. So we're going to receive a body that is changed to be immortal. And it's going to be a body that we will never die in, but it has to be changed and transformed in order for us to go into heaven. And so we can't do that prior to our body and our, our, our actual body, our mortal body now, and our soul being put back together and us being raised back to life. That cannot happen uh, before that because that has to happen. And as we're being raised, he says, we're raised up and we're going to change and transform. You need those two parts, those two components, in order for that transformation to take place. You can't have one and not the other. But we are going to be changed. Our bodies, our mortal bodies, is going to, is going to be changed to something that is incorruptible. And it's really hard for us to imagine that. But he's going to give us something that's different and something that's better and something that is capable of, entering, uh, capable of not only entering into that place, but capable of seeing it. And we're not going to change into an angel or we might change again into a state of something spiritual. But notice what Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 20. Our citizenship, he says, that's what conversation means. Our citizenship is in heaven. From whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking for him to return from heaven. And when he does, he will change our vile body 
that it might be fashioned like to his glorious body. We're not going to be like angels. We're not going to turn into angels. We're going to turn into something like Christ and what he is. That's what John said in 1 John 2. He says, we don't know yet what it's like. It hasn't been revealed to us. The apostles didn't even know what it's going to be like. But he says, we do know this, that when he appears, we will be like him. Whatever Christ, whatever state that Christ was resurrected to and ascended to and is there in heaven, in, that's what you're going to get. That's what I'm going to get. And our vile body will be changed and we'll be like him. Um, and that's part of his glorious power and the, the resurrection of life. We'll get a new body. And Christ will come and gather us up. He's from heaven. He teaches us about heaven. He died and he rose and he went back to heaven. He's coming back from heaven to take us there. Ultimately, he wants you and me, as he told his disciples, where I am there, you may be also. He wants you to be there in heaven with him. We're not there yet. And we won't go there when we die. Not, not immediately. But we will go when we are made alive. We have to be made alive in order to go there. And that's what he wants to do. And that's why he's coming to raise us up. And we won't go to heaven until then. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 23, he explains the order and the process of things. Every man in his own order. Christ was the first fruits from the dead. He was the first person to rise to eternal life, be physically raised from the grave to eternal life and, and ascended to heaven. He did it first so that afterwards those that are Christ at his coming would also experience that. And we won't experience it until his coming. Then comes the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and power and authority. There's this idea that is prevalent among, uh, among churches and, and people who are claiming to, to be teaching Christian doctrines. And uh, again, I said these premillennial ideas that we find uh, being taught in the, in the world and religious world are not found in the scriptures. But there's this idea that Christ is going to return from heaven with all these saints who have died and gone to heaven, and he's going to come back down here on earth. That's not what the Bible says. He says he will have raised us up, and then he's taking up the kingdom to God. He's not coming to establish a kingdom and for us to live on this earth. It's, it's going to be destroyed. He is Instead, he's going to gather up those that belong to him, transform us, and deliver up the kingdom to God. And that's when we will go into heaven, and not until then. Uh, and he's going to take us there to save us from the destruction that's going to happen to the rest of the world. We studied about this in, in Noah. It's similar to that. He places us in this ark of safety, raises us up, and destroys the world with the flood. And in this scenario, we're in Christ. We're going to be raised up, and he destroys the world with the fire. But Jesus takes us up to save us from wrath. In 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we live here now, and we're waiting for his Son from heaven, whom he raised up from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. There is a time of wrath that is coming, and if you're in Christ, he is going to save you, and he's taking you to heaven to spare you from that wrath. And when he does that, and when he takes us, that's when we'll be with him, and that's, that's where we will be with him forever, for eternity. 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together. So in, in explaining somewhat of the sequence of things, the people will rise from the grave, as Jesus said, and then all of us will be caught up together. Um, as We're not going to go up to heaven before the people who, are, who have died. He just says that they're going to be raised up first, and then we which are alive and remain 
Those who are not asleep, as we said, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So we're going to get to experience something beautiful, and all that are dead in the graves will be raised, and if we're alive at that time when Christ comes, we're not in the grave, our body's not in the grave, and our soul's not in Hades. If, if that's the case, and we're, uh, if he returned now for all of us, that would be the case. He says, then we'll all be caught up together and go with him into this place. And in that process of being caught up, Paul describes that transformation where we'll get those new bodies and we'll be able to actually go into this place called heaven. And so shall we ever be with him. And what will we experience there when we finally go to that place? Well, we'll experience everything that he's told us about that's from there. And, and experience the fullness of that promise that he made, which is in 1 John 2, he says, this is the promise that he promised us, eternal life. We'll be alive forever. And the things that cause us death, the things that bring about death, will not be permitted to enter into that place. And we'll be safe. We'll be safe and we'll be free and all those sins that plague us in this life that cause us to fall that cause us to fail that cause us to carry about the guilt and the shame that we carry with us on a daily basis will be gone you ever had a burden so heavy something that you're so stressed out about in this life that finally when it's resolved you just feel so light and free imagine that times eternity And, it, and that's why Peter describes it as you will have joy, exceeding joy. It's going to be beyond joy what we're going to get to experience. You know, sometimes people worry about that and say, well, are we going to remember things? Are we going to remember our life? Are we going to remember our family? Are we going to know people? And I tend to think that we will know people and we will have memory. Why would God wipe away our memory? That would cheapen all of the, the, the hardship that we've gone through. Because then we won't have anything to, to, to compare it to and say and understand why this is so much better and why this was worth it. But, but honestly, I think that it's going to be so great and we're going to feel so relieved and we're going to feel so at peace and we're going to be so overcome with joy because we can see Christ and we're there in His presence that nothing that we've gone through None of these things will even matter anymore by comparison. In Romans 8, he says, if we're the children of God, then we are heirs. We're heirs of God. That's our inheritance. We think of treasure and we think of mansions and we think of these things and we get excited about that. But we're, we're inheriting God himself and we're joint heirs with Christ. That's the inheritance that we need and that we're going to be gifted. And if indeed we suffer with him, that of this present time, indeed if we suffer with him, that of this present time are not worthy uh, to be compared, we may be also glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings, uh, seems that I, seems that I've got an error on that, on that, um, Thank you. 
Thank you. The sufferings of this present time, he says, he describes, they are not worthy to be compared. It's not even worth comparing what we've gone through in this life, everything that we've experienced, all the hardships, all the sin that has made us fall, all the battles, all the tears, all the frustrations, all that guilt, it's not going to be worthy to be compared with the glory that will be received and, and will be revealed in us. And it will, it, it, it's just not even going to be worth thinking about. And all the sacrifices that you've made in this life, all the losing that you've done on purpose, the giving up, as Jesus says, losing your life for His sake, all that you've given up and all that you've gone through will be worth it. Far worth it. And the eternal weight will outweigh that. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, our light affliction, <laughs> that's what it's going to be like. It doesn't feel so light right now. It feels heavy. And it feels like it crushes us. But Paul says, in that time when Christ comes and we see him and we experience the resurrection of life, we're going to think about that and say, this is a light affliction. That was nothing. And it's just for a moment. And it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. All the sacrifices that you put in will be worth it. And we will be co-heirs with Christ and experience the treasure and the blessing that he, he has for us. First Peter 1, 3-5, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy, He's begotten us again. He's made us born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. To what? What's the hope? To that inheritance that is incorruptible, it's undefiled and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This explains our life in this, in this world right now. You're a pilgrim, we're journeying, we're waiting, we have a living hope, and we're going to inherit God and be joint heirs with Christ and all the blessings that He's promised for us. And that is what we're living for. That is what we're working for. And I think it's worth us remembering that because it's easy to get distracted in this world and it's easy to forget. It sure is for me. But we're working towards something far greater. And it's a salvation that's ready to be revealed at that last day when Christ comes and raises us up and gives us those blessings. And then we'll receive that mansion that He promised. We'll be glorified together with Him. We'll have that safety and that peace. We'll have hope realized. We'll have freedom from sin. We'll eat from the tree of life, Jesus says. That's the blessing that awaits us in that eternal destination. That's what the Bible describes as heaven. And there's so much more that we could talk about, I'm, I'm certain we don't have time for. But I hope that this gives you a, a better picture of what it is that we stand to gain and why it's so important. Jesus came from there, and He is telling us about it, and He wants you to be there. The only way we can be there is if we are one with Him, and it begins with, of course, being baptized into Him. In John 3, verse 3, He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you expect to see the kingdom and expect to be in heaven, we must begin by joining giving up our will and our foolishness and being born again to that lively hope by being baptized into Christ. And if you're here this morning and have not chosen to be baptized yet, why wait? If Christ returns, you don't want to be found outside of Christ. And we'll explore why in the next lesson, uh, next time I, uh, that I speak. But, but uh, you want to be found in Christ so that you can experience these blessings. And if there's anybody here 
that needs prayers from the church, encouragement. Uh, hopefully this has been encouraging to you, and, and if you need prayers, we're here to pray with you. And if you need Christ and you want to be baptized into Christ, we want that for you as well so that you can be where Christ is ultimately. Uh, if there's anybody that has a need, please come as we stand and sing this song. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.